Hello and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvements Author in the Room conference call. My name is Kim and I'll be your conference moderator for today's program. Right now all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later we will conduct a question and answer session and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time during the call, please press star zero and an operator will assist you. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Madge Kaplan, Senior Communications Strategist and former editor and health correspondent for National Public Radio. Madge, you may go ahead. Thank you, Kim. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Author in the Room, a project of JAMA and IHI, that is, the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, made possible by a generous grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. My name, indeed, is Madge Kaplan, and I'm Senior Communications Strategist at IHI, and will serve as moderator for these monthly discussions. Designed to bridge the gap between knowledge, what is published in an article, and action, being able to translate knowledge into steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Today, our featured author is Dr. Jackson T. Wright, Jr. Dr. Wright is the first author of the article, Outcomes in Hypertensive Black and Non-Black Patients Treated with Chlorthalidone, Amlodipine, and Lisinopril, published in the April 6th issue of JAMA. Dr. Wright is a tenured professor of medicine in the Division of Nephrology and Hypertension at Case Western Reserve University. He directs hypertension programs at University Hospitals of Cleveland and at the Lewis Stokes Cleveland Veterans Administration Medical Center. Welcome, Dr. Wright. Uh, thank you, uh, Ms. Kaplan. It's my pleasure to be here. Terrific. Also with us today to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Wright's findings with an eye toward clinical improvement is Dr. Chuck Kylo. Dr. Kylo is CEO of Greenfield Health in Portland, Oregon. He's a fellow with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and a practicing internist. Welcome, Dr. Kylo. Good to be here, Madge. Terrific. The purpose of today's and future Author in the Room calls is for you to hear directly from an author about research findings that can improve patient care and clinical practice because we know that making the leap from what's on the page to changes in how care is delivered can be daunting. Each Author in the Room call is guided by a clinical improvement expert. He or she suggests how to first plan, then try out some new ways of doing things on a small scale, observe the results, refine methods, and eventually get to a place where the change or changes have the desired impact and can be fully implemented. That, in a nutshell, is the role Dr. Kylo will be playing today, and he's going to be helping you imagine and plan these steps toward improving care. Now, IHI and JAMA plan to study the degree to which author in the room participants incorporate clinical improvements suggested by our experts and the impact these changes have on clinical practice. We're asking that all participants complete two short surveys immediately after the call and three months from now. These surveys are emailed to you. We thank you for taking the time to complete the surveys so that we may carefully monitor and measure the value of these discussions. 
There are over 121 organizations registered to be on this call today. Members of the media may be present on a background basis only. And one other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites. Okay, let's get started. Let me again introduce Dr. Jackson Wright, who will provide an overview of his newly published research. Dr. Wright, go ahead. Thank you, uh, uh, Kaplan. Um, uh, the objective uh, of the all-hat trial was to determine whether newer antihypertensive agents were superior to thyroid-type diuretics in preventing cardiovascular events, especially coronary events. Now, prior to all-hat, it was known that thyroid-type diuretics produce small but significant adverse changes in glucose, lipids, electrolytes, and uric acid. Uh, newer agents uh, introduced were known to be either metabolically neutral, uh, for example, the calcium channel blockers, or known to have favorable metabolic effects on blood glucose and lipids, uh, for example, as with the, uh, the alpha blockers and the ACE inhibitors. In addition, ACE, inhibit ACE inhibition of the renin angiotensin system was uh, also hypothesized to be anti-atherogenic. Finally, in black hypertensives, monotherapy with uh, ACE inhibitors uh, was, was known to be less effective in lowering blood pressures in this race subgroup. Thus, the all-hat protocol pre-specified analysis by race, and strategies were developed to ensure an adequate sample size of blacks uh, were included in, in the trial. In our first report from all-hat, we reported that tests of interaction suggested that analysis by race uh, significantly affected the results. Now, this has led to some confusion and controversy regarding the, the results, and this it was especially in non-blacks. Uh, thus, uh, this paper reports the detailed analysis of the all-hat data by race. Now, the methods of the trial uh, 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 included the fact that all-hat was an NIH-sponsored, randomized, controlled clinical outcome trial. Now, in contrast to the recent trend in outcome tri trials, it was entirely double-blinded with the data coordinating center at the University of Texas Clinical Trial Center. The trial was conducted at 623 sites with more than half identifying uh, themselves as uh, private, private or group practice sites. Thus, uh, the trial was conducted under real-world conditions. The trial sample size was powered to detect a 16% difference in the primary endpoint of fatal coronary artery disease or non-fatal myocardial infarction. In order to do so, uh, this required a sample size of more than 40,000 participants, including the doxazin arm, which makes all have the largest hypertension trial ever conducted. In addition to the primary outcome, uh, Secondary outcomes included uh, uh, combined coronary heart disease outcomes, which included the primary outcome of fatal CHD and non-fatal MI, plus hospitalized angina and coronary revascularization procedures. There was also a combined cardiovascular disease outcome, which included the above, plus stroke, plus peripheral vascular disease events, plus treated, hospitalized, and fatal uh, heart failure. Now, most trials combined many of the above endpoints, allowing a much smaller sample size, 
However, because of its large sample size, all have easily had the sample size to evaluate the outcomes that were uh, uh, the primary outcomes uh, in, uh, in smaller studies. Other outcomes included the incidence of cancer, GI bleeding, uh, incidence of uh, uh, left ventricular hypertrophy by ECG, and end-stage renal disease outcomes. One arm of the study, the doxazin arm, was stopped a year early because of a 25% increase in coronary heart disease events, a 20% increase in stroke, and a near doubling of heart failure in the doxazin arm compared to the chlorothalidone arm. Those results were previously reported and not included here. Comparisons presented here are, are, are between the ACE inhibitor, which was represented by lisinopril, in a dose of 10 to 40 milligrams per day, the calcium channel blocker represented by amlodipine, a dose of two and a half to 10 milligrams per day. And both uh, were compared to the thiazide type diuretic represented by chlorothalidone at a dose of 12.5 to 25 milligrams per day, which corresponds to a dose of between 20 and 40 milligrams of HCTZ. Thus, the trial represented a comparison of the newer agents uh, versus moderate uh, and rather than low-dose diuretic therapy. More than 60% of participants were receiving maximum dose of the randomized drug at four years' uh, follow-up. Now, uh, patients were included in the trial if they were above age 655, and if their untreated systolic blood pressure was between 140 and 180, or, or diastolic and diastolic between 90 and 110, or if they were treated with uh, one, they could be included if they if their blood pressure was less than 160 over 100 on one to two medications. Uh, patients also had to have at least one other cardiovascular risk factor. The exclusions were the usual exclusions for this type of trial. But it is noteworthy that uh, patients were excluded if they had any previous history of heart failure or if they had a known ejection fraction less than 35%. And patients were also excluded if they had a creatinine greater than 2. Follow-up in the trial was 4 to 8 years with a mean follow-up of uh, 4.9 years. The study population uh, was 35% uh, black. Uh, 92% of the non-blacks in the trial were identified themselves as white. The trial had 41% of the participants were diabetic. Compared to non-blacks, blacks in the trial were significantly more likely to be women, have diabetes, smoke cigarettes, and have the uh, ECG LVH. But importantly, baseline blood pressure was, a, was similar across all randomized drug groups and across uh, races. The results of the trial, by end of follow-up, average blood pressure was lowered to less than 140 over 90 in all treatment groups and in both races. In non-blacks, uh, if blood pressure, if averaged over five years of follow-up, was lowered to 137, a mean of 137 over 78, uh, regardless of randomization to either the ACE, the calcium channel blocker, or diuretic group, with less than one millimeter of mercury separating the treatment groups. In blacks, 
Mean blood pressure was lowered to less than 140 over 90 in all treatment groups by the end of four years. However, blood pressure averaged over the five years showed significant differences by treatment group. Diuretic-based treatment uh, reduced systolic blood pressure to 138 uh, uh, millimeters of mercury uh, versus uh, 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 two millimeters, millimeters of mercury higher in the calcium channel blocker group at 140, and uh, five millimeters mercury higher in the uh, ACE inhibitor treatment group, uh, systolic blood pressure uh, reduced to average 143. Asolic blood pressure in the black all-hat participants was 80 millimeters of mercury for the diuretic and calcium channel blocker groups, and uh, 82 millimeters mercury for the ACE inhibitor-based treatment group. Thus, uh, for the black subgroup, diuretic-based therapy, lower blood pressure, uh, two over zero millimeters mercury more than the calcium channel blocker treatment group. And the, uh, there was a five over two millimeter mercury uh, difference, higher blood pressure uh, in the ACE inhibitor group compared to the diuretic group. As expected, in both race subgroups, the increase in blood glucose and cholesterol and the decrease in serum potassium were less in the ACE inhibitor group and calcium channel blocker group than in the diuretic group. Notably, uh, the difference in fasting glucose after four years was approximately four millimeters mercury uh, higher in the diuretic uh, than in the, uh, uh, between the diuretic and ACE groups uh, in both race subgroups, in both blacks and in whites. This translated into approximately 4% more individuals of both races crossing the 126 milligram per deciliter threshold, defining, uh, uh, de defining uh, diabetes in the diuretic group compared to the ACE group. Importantly, these differences were expected and comprised a major rationale for the design and conduct of, the, of, the, of all hats. When we get to the effect of these differences on clinical outcomes, first, neither the calcium channel blocker group nor the ACE-based treatment was more effective in reducing the primary uh, coronary heart disease outcome of fatal CHD or non-fatal MI in either race subgroup. And that's not even in the non-black subgroup where the blood pressure differences were minimal. In no trial outcome was the calcium channel blocker group or ACE-based treatment shown to be more effective in reducing events than the diuretic-based treatment. The calcium channel blocker-based treatment resulted in a similar rate of all outcomes in both races except for heart failure where a calcium channel blocker group was associated with 32% higher risk of heart failure in non-blacks and 46% higher risk in blacks. For the ACE-based treatment, the differences by race were mostly one of magnitude or quantitative rather than qualitative. In non-blacks with little blood pressure difference between drug groups and no benefit over diuretic-based treatment on coronary outcomes, there was a significantly a significant 13% greater risk of heart failure, uh, which translated into a borderline significant 6% increase in combined cardiovascular disease events uh, in the non-black subgroup. 
in blacks, in addition to the larger blood pressure difference, there was a 40% higher risk of stroke, 30% higher risk of heart failure, 15% higher risk of combined coronary events, and 19% higher risk of combined cardiovascular events in participants randomized to the ACE compared to the diuretic. Differences in outcome remain even after adjusting for the blood pressure differences using the statistical methods usually applied to the trial. Therefore, the conclusions of the study was that despite the more favorable effect on metabolic parameters, neither the ACE-based nor the calcium channel blocker-based treatment was more effective in preventing clinical outcomes than a diuretic-based treatment, and diuretic-based treatment was more effective in both race subgroups uh, for preventing heart failure. While improved outcomes with a diuretic-based treatment was more pronounced for some outcomes in blacks than in non-blacks, uh, thiazide-type diuretics remain the drug of choice for initial therapy of hypertension in both race subgroups. Now, while based on current analyses, uh, either CCBs or calcium channel blockers uh, may be used as initial therapy in the small numbers of patients who cannot take a diuretic, because of the difference in outcomes in black patients, uh, the, we conclude that calcium channel blockers should be selected over ACEs as the alternative initial therapy in, in, in black hypertensives. And finally, since most hypertensive patients will require multiple drugs to achieve their blood pressure goal, uh, our conclusion is that thiazide type diuretics should be included uh, in, in the regimen. And I'll conclude there. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you very much, and you brought us to uh, some of your kind of fundamental recommendations, excuse me, fundamental recommendations and take-home uh, points. Perfect segue uh, to uh, Dr. Kylo and uh, what Dr. Wright's uh, guidelines suggest about changes in clinical practice that clinicians uh, might consider. Uh, Dr. Kylo, what sort of improvement in care follows from these latest findings. If you're a practitioner who would like his or her patients with high blood pressure to use the diuretics as the first course of treatment or perhaps switch to them, where do you start? How do you start? Thank you very much, Madge. I appreciate that. And I think, first of all, um, we owe Dr. Wright, uh, his co-authors, and other all-hat colleagues uh, a great deal of thanks for the wonderful service they've done us in this research, really an elegant trial with a lot of very practical and useful information on uh, a clinical condition that we treat day in and day out, obviously hypertension. Now the challenge is, as you state, Madge, to take this knowledge and to get it into practice. And before we talk about some of the specific recommendations, which we will come back around to, uh, let's just review very quickly the process of making changes in practice. Um, the, uh, the model that we tend to use for this is something called the model for improvement, with which many of the listeners may be familiar with, but many may not be. And this is a model that's been developed by Tom Nolan and colleagues at Associates in Process Improvement. It's a simple yet powerful tool for driving organizational improvement. And as healthcare professionals, uh, the process of system improvement should look familiar to us for good reasons, because it is, in essence, the scientific method applied to managing and improving uh, our organizational performance. So if any time during this call or in other settings where you begin to feel a discordance from the jargon that we use to describe the process of improvement, just recall that it's really the scientific method that we're talking about. 
the scientific method applied to your practice and the improvement of your practice. Well, to start off with, uh, uh, Madge, we, uh, there are two parts of this model for improvement. The first part really is about stating your hypothesis, our hypothesis, which is an important part of, uh, of any experimentation. There are really three components of this, and we're going to come back around and talk about these specifically with Dr. Wright, and then we'll open it up to questions. Um, the first part, again, is about stating your hypothesis, and there are really three pieces of this. The first is setting very clear aims, specific aims, that everybody in the practice understands. Specifically, what is it that you're trying to achieve? Uh, the second piece is to establish measures so that we know that if the changes that we make have led to a real improvement. Uh, and the third is to identify testable changes that will likely lead to improvement, and that's what you asked about, Madge. And so this part one of the model of improvement, establishing aims and measures and identifying testable changes, uh, is a critical foundation for driving organizational improvement. So you asked specifically about these testable changes. Well, what, what do we mean by that? Uh, we'll talk briefly about that. And the second part of the model for improvement is about testing of hypotheses, running many experiments, if you'd like, uh, to think of it that way. Uh, we're not talking about experimenting on patients. Uh, we're really talking about experimenting on the way that we provide care, on our systems of care, based on good knowledge, rational changes in the way you practice in order to achieve safe, demonstrable improvements in care. So it's something we do every day, and we'd simply like for you to do it in a more organized fashion so that we can understand the results of those changes and then systematically build upon that knowledge. So remember that science is all about experiments to learn and to continually build upon that learning to advance our knowledge. It's certainly how the Wright brothers successfully built the first airplane is how Lance Armstrong learned to ride a bicycle. In improvement parlance, uh, the process of testing hypotheses or running these experiments is called the Plan, Do, Study, Act cycle, or PDSA cycle. And the process is simple. It includes planning a test, doing a test, collecting some data, and studying the implications, and then acting on what you learned. The intent is to run rapid, safe, data-driven, small-scale tests of change in real work settings. So if the quality improvement jargon of the plan, do, study, act cycle or the PDSA cycle doesn't sit well with you, that's fine. Just think of it as a scientific method in action. We're using the scientific method to make rapid, action-oriented changes in your practice. So having said that, let's go back to the first part of the model for improvement, which is our aims and our measures. Dr. Wright, maybe you could just review with us uh, really quickly what our aims uh, ought to be for treating hypertension. Well, the, the aims would be uh, that, uh, one, for, for those patients uh, who uh, initially present with hypertension, that the thiazide-type diuretics, uh, athiazide-type diuretics should be uh, what should be the first agent uh, that would be selected in, in, in most, uh, uh, most hypertensives, the vast majority of hypertensives. And two, that uh, in those patients who have, um, whose blood pressure is not controlled, uh, and, but who are, on, who are on other agents, but not on a diuretic, that the diuretic should be added to, to that regimen. Uh, very, very helpful. And specifically, we're shooting for blood pressures just to make sure we're all on the same page in that regard of? Uh, well, blood pressure, uh, According to the national guidelines, certainly less than 140 over 90 uh, for those patients uh, with uh, renal insufficiency or uh, uh, with, uh, diabetes, uh, less than 130 over 80. Great. 
Uh, and uh, those are really quite stringent numbers. Uh, it used to be uh, that we were less stringent about that. We certainly worried less about systolic hypertension than we did about diastolic hypertension. And I think we all still are uh, realize that we have a lot of patients walking around with systolics in the consistently in the high 140s or 150s range, and so it's it's very important I think that we uh, we have a standard agreement in our practices about what is adequately controlled hypertension so that we can measure against that. And the next question after we've established these aims of appropriate blood pressure control and which to use, which agents to use first, and which to add if somebody's not in control, is to establish some measures, and the measures there might be. Uh, obviously, the percentage of patients who are well controlled and the percentage of patients that are on various antihypertensive agents. Uh, and so those measures can be easily obtained by doing a chart review uh, or by uh, querying your electronic medical records if you're in an electronic environment to help you understand what percentage of your patients are in control, uh, which percentage of patients may not be. Uh, and you can even get a list of your antihypertensives that are in use. When you do that, I think you will be quite surprised by the range of different antihypertensives that are being used in your in your practices. Uh, there are a number of antihypertensives out there, obviously, in a number of different classes. And uh, what we realize is that patients are on a very, very broad uh, categories of those medications. So. Uh, the measures are important uh, to develop and, and lead to a lot of insight at the same time. The next step then is to identify some of these testable changes and then to test those changes. Dr. Wright, would you have any, um, any recommendations for us in that regard? If we were just getting started in this and we really wanted to improve our antihypertensive management based on this study and other all-hat work, again, what are your recommendations? Um, well, one recommendation, again, is that uh, uh, when we look at the uh, the, 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 the overall the, the overall use of, of diuretics in, within the practices, it's, it's relatively low, and, and many studies have, have shown this. I think uh, 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 data run anywhere from 25 to uh, to 30 percent of uh, of uh, uh, patients hypertensives are, are being treated with diuretics. So we have a lot of room to, to grow. And so that simply adding, and, and as a very first step, as indicated previously, the very first step is simply to uh, uh, to identify those patients who uh, within the practice uh, who are not on diuretics, and if their blood pressure isn't controlled, then simply add a, a diuretic. Uh, for those who are uh, uh, who um, uh, whose blood pressure is under control, and especially in here, I think if we're talking about a uh, a, a black patient, then certainly would consider uh, switching uh, to a a diuretic, especially if they are not, if they are on an ACE inhibitor. Um, I think those, those would be uh, at least a good start. Right. You know, there, we tend to, as we think about making change in the practice, we tend to have two different types of inter, uh, interventions. The one that we all tend to gravitate to, because it seems to be the easiest and what we know is an educational intervention, sitting down with the other practitioners in our office. Uh, and talking to them about high blood pressure management or maybe organizing a grand rounds. Uh, and uh, those, as we know, are useful interventions. They're necessary but not sufficient interventions. Uh, educational efforts tend to, the effect of interventional uh, educational interventions tend to wane over time. They're non-durable. They require ongoing reinforcement. But they are useful, and uh, some ideas there are to, uh, again, begin to hold meetings with your colleagues to talk about blood pressure management, uh, to set a standard protocol for uh, uh, 
how to start treatment with blood pressure uh, medications, uh, and to set up a schedule of reinforcing this information. The other changes that one could consider are more systematic interventions, uh, which tend to degrade less with time, particularly if they make a clinician's life easier. And some ideas there, as an example, are to uh, either change the sample closet or to eliminate your sample closet. And it'll be interesting to see what questions in, uh, some of the participants uh, might have in that regard. But there's a reasonable amount of literature on the adverse effects of sample closets and sampling on prescribing behaviors. And I suspect in many practices it is how many patients are started on and therefore sustained on very expensive newer antihypertensives when you have a lot of research like yours that suggests that uh, a very inexpensive um, uh, thiazide-type diuretic is the place to start. So sample closets are another place to look for some system-level changes. Uh, Anything else before we open it up to questions and answers? I was going to say, Chuck, if you, uh, Dr. Kylo, if you want to just uh, tick off, uh, I know you did some uh, definite thinking about this ahead of time, just maybe one or two other uh, ideas very quickly, and then we will go to questions. I'd be happy to do that, Madge. So when we think about this topic in general from an improvement perspective, it fits within the general category of improving prescribing practices and therefore we think about how to do that within a medical practice. And again, there are the educational interventions and non-educational, more system level interventions. Under education, we talk about group educations via conferences, grand rounds, email dissemination of information is another way to do that. And then there's also one-on-one -on -one interventions. The uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers call it detailing. They send in detailers into your practice to tell you about different studies. And so uh, in, uh, when we do it to ourselves, it tends to be called counter-detailing, sitting down with your colleagues, hopefully over data, and saying, look, here's how you prescribe antihypertensives, uh, and here's what the, the literature suggests we ought to be doing. So counter-detailing counter is another educational intervention. In terms of the system uh, interventions, we mentioned focusing on the sample closet, either stocking your sample closet uh, only uh, with uh, generics or getting rid of the sample closet altogether, with a, which I think there is a lot of literature to support in terms of the improvement of care. Uh, another uh, opportunity is to create an automatic uh, system to treat newly diagnosed hypertensive patients. As an example, if you have a new case of hypertension, you sort of have a hypertension starter kit, which is already prepared. If you have samples, uh, you can have samples of hydrochlorothiazide or chlorothalidone. If you don't have samples, you can have a preprinted order form, uh, prescription form for those medications with other literature about uh, blood pressure management, self-management of blood pressure, and other instructions like that. Uh, and the same could be applied to those people who come in who have high blood pressure and on medications, but not on a thiazide-type diuretic, uh, and, uh, uh, and yet their blood pressure is not controlled. That process can be automated with a similar kit, which makes it a lot easier for the physicians to know uh, what the right thing to do is. So those are some examples, Madge. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Kylo. Some very interesting suggestions pointing us in uh, a good direction. And thank you again, Dr. Wright, for your important research and the summary. 
A quick reminder that IHI and JAMA plan to study the impact of author in the room on call participants' clinical practice using two short surveys. So please don't forget to complete the surveys. They will be emailed to you, and we greatly appreciate your taking part in this important research about the value of this type of discussion. So we are indeed going to turn to questions from you, our callers, our listeners. Uh, you may have questions of various types about the science, uh, the methodology, and about the process that Dr. Kylo was just talking about of how to go about making changes in your clinical practice. Uh, that is what we hope to especially focus on uh, today. Please state your name and where you're from, uh, be as concise as possible, and uh, tell us to whom your question is directed. Okay, we can go ahead, Kim. Thank you. At this time, we will conduct a question and answer session. If you have a question, press zero, then the one key on your touchtone phone. This will place you into a queue, and one by one, the lines will be opened, so you may each ask your questions. Again, that is zero, one on your touchtone phone. If your question is answered before your turn and you no longer wish to ask it, please press zero, two. And our first question comes from Randy with Middlesex Hospital. Please go ahead. Hi there. This uh, question is uh, directed both to Drs. Wright and Kylo. First of all, thank you very much for your presentation and for your research. It's a great study. Um, my question specifically regards chlorothaladone, and I'm cautious of extrapolating the benefits found with chlorothaladone to be a class effect of all thiazide-type diuretics. And given that, I'm wondering if you would suggest that we use chlorothaladone initially rather than the hydrochlorothiazide for initial treatment of hypertension in most patients. Okay, Dr. Wright, that sounds like maybe something you might grab at. Hello? Did we lose Dr. Wright? Dr. Wright's line has dropped from the conference. Okay. Dr. Kyla, what, what's been your, some of your, while we get Dr. Wright back, uh, Dr. Kyla, what's been some of your experience in terms of where question really having to do with the actual uh, drug here? Well, Dr. Wright uh, and I spoke uh, about this extensively uh, before the call, and it is, and, and he is, he is the hypertension expert, just so everybody knows, and I am not. Uh, I do practice general medicine, so I have this. I had the same question for him, and uh, he stated that in his mind they are therapeutically equivalent. Uh, and he thought that the uh, extrapolation to hydrochlorothiazide was uh, was valid, and that the, 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 the hydrochlorothiazide could easily be substituted for chlorothaladone. Um, the Another question that I had for him, which we'll ask him if he comes back on, is, is there any benefit of uh, triamterine hydrochlorothiazide? Uh, this study was not uh, in designed to test that, uh, but uh, I think the extrapolation to those other med similar medications is something that we're all curious about. Okay, very good. Okay, thank you. Uh, Kim, next question. We have another question. Uh, all right. Uh, well, I have a, a question uh, for, for Dr. Kylo, which is something we had talked about, which is um, kind of walking through how to think about some of this appropriate treatment of high blood pressure for patients with diabetes. Uh, Dr. Wright referred to that. It does seem to be one of the issues uh, that maybe trips some folks up and sort of skews things one way or another in terms of whether the alternatives uh, should be used instead. Uh, can you speak to that at all? Well, it's a very good question, Madge. And I think the important thing from an improvement perspective is that we standardize our approach when we can 
and then we understand the exceptions and when to use exceptions to change the way we think and change our management. So in general, based on this study and based on the recommendations of others, based on other studies, uh, I feel very comfortable starting hydrochlorothiazide or chlorothaladone as the first line of treatment and the question becomes when, when, what are the exceptions to that? And certainly diabetics and or black diabetics are something that comes to mind uh, particularly within the context of this study. And I think part of the answer to that is to question the other clinical context for any individual diabetic and what else might be going on with them. So certainly we all know the positive benefits of ACE inhibitors in diabetes. And so it still seems rational to think about using an ACE inhibitor as first-line treatment for diabetics irrespective of uh, their race. Uh, this is obviously particularly true uh, if they have any degradation of their renal function or if they have proteinuria. Hello? There you are. Yeah. Hello, Hi. you're you're back. We're so glad you're back. <laughs> I, I was dropped out. <laughs> well, we're we're, we're I glad I was you're no longer welcome. Okay, no, 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 no. Yeah. It wasn't it, we promise you, it was nothing you said. And uh, <laughs> Dr. Kylo is, uh, you know, holding up uh, the world for us here. And okay. thank you. Uh, all right. Well, let's um, Matt, actually, let just, Dr. Wright. Maybe I will just put yep. this question to you. I just yep. asked Dr. Kylo very quickly uh, how to. The issue of patients with diabetes seems to be one of the sometimes confounding factors here uh, that sort of throws people one way or another in terms of prescribing practices. I think Dr. Kylo did a nice job just now. Is there anything you'd like to say about that in terms of sort of thinking from the physician perspective, either how to maybe change your thinking or change your approach to that? Yeah, there's, uh, there are a couple issues. One is that, uh, don't forget, the, the blood pressure goal for the diabetic hypertensive is, is, is lower. Uh, and it, it is very unlikely uh, that a uh, 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 that the vast majority of diabetics uh, will be controlled on a single agent. So that uh, know that, uh, uh, that uh, there is, uh, for the protection against renal outcomes, uh, that in fact uh, 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 diabetic nephropathy uh, in those patients who have nephropathy, then certainly the inhibitors of the renin-angiotensin system, the ACEs and ARMS are clearly indicated. Uh, actually, though, for the prevention of cardiovascular events, um, uh, and in fact, if, if you remember, all had had about 41% of the uh, participants in all had were in fact diabetics. Uh, and in fact, uh, that it, even in uh, for the prevention of renal events, uh, then actually the size diuretic uh, chlorothaladone was more effective uh, in preventing cardiovascular events uh, than in fact uh, was the ACE inhibitor. And that was one of the uh, reasons that uh, at JNC7 uh, uh, recommended uh, that uh, the, uh, uh, and also the calcium channel blockers were also uh, effective in preventing cardiovascular events. So that uh, uh, JNC7, in fact, uh, recommended that, that in addition to the, uh, the ACE inhibitors, uh, that the uh, uh, and the ARBs that in fact the calcium channel blockers as well as the uh, uh, the, the diuretic as well as the beta blocker in fact uh, be included among those that have a compelling indication uh, to be used in patients with, with diabetes uh, so that um, the inclusion of a of a of a diuretic uh, in the diabetic patient uh, it, uh, 
also becomes a no-brainer, especially in those who do not have uh, uh, renal uh, disease. Okay. And even in those with renal disease, uh, okay. they will certainly require a, a diuretic for the, uh, 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 both to prevent uh, cardiovascular events as well as to control blood pressure. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, Kim, are you there? Yes. Let's okay. take our next question, and that Terrific. will come from Roger with the Portland Clinic. Roger, you may go ahead. Yes, thank you. All uh, hat's been very interesting to read and review, uh, and this is certainly an excellent setting for it. Um, I have one maybe follow-up question about the, the uh, uh, choice of chlorothaladone. Um, the, the, what I understand is that it about, has about a four-time longer half-life than hydrochlorothiazide. Uh, at least in Oregon, it's really not used, and it's about twice as expensive if we try to get it. I was wondering what the study... Uh, um, authors uh, were thinking when they chose that drug. And then the next question is, I'd like your opinion of the relative benefit in reporting a study of relative improvement in event rate versus uh, absolute change in event rate, which usually is reflected in a number needed to treat sort of report. And that's the two things. Okay, thank you very much, Roger. Well, who wants to go for the first uh, question having to do with the particular, uh, uh, you know, drug we're talking about, chlorothaladone? Yeah. Uh, chlorothaladone, yeah. And uh, chlorothaladone was selected to, as the representative of the, uh, of the thiazide-type diuretics to, to be used for several reasons. One is that there had been previous studies that had, uh, that had, uh, that had used uh, chlorothaladone. Certainly that was the drug that was used in SHEP. I believe that was also the drug used in, uh, in HDFT, uh, so that there had been experience. One. Uh, two is the fact that, and actually if you look at the, uh, the event rate reductions, um, or if you look at the, the studies that have used thiazide-type diuretics, um, uh, whichever diuretic, whichever thiazide-type diuretic was, uh, was used, it, it, the, uh, the effect on, on outcome was, was very similar. And there does not appear to be uh, it does not appear to be any any suggestion that uh, that uh, the it was the specific drug that was selected uh, the specific size size that, that was selected uh, that was uh, uh, important uh, to the uh, uh, to the outcome or results of the trial. And finally, um, one of the issues that we were dealing with uh, don't forget all had came out uh, or st was initiated in the early 90s. And that was the time of the low-dose diuretic um, uh, uh, diuretic era, and also the the, the very um, uh, large concern regarding the use of, of high-dose diuretics, especially in a diabetic cohort. And so that uh, uh, many physicians uh, felt comfortable using the 12 and a half and 25 milligram dose. Uh, because of the fact that chlorothaladone is uh, has almost twice the potency of the um, of the uh, uh, of hydrochlorothiazide, uh, the uh, that's probably less well appreciated. We were in fact able to get away with using a moderate dose thiazide type diuretic uh, with uh, uh, in the comparison with the newer agents, and so that um, uh, there have been uh, some studies that, that clearly suggest uh, that 
the uh, choice of hydrofluorothiazide when if you elect to, you can use thiazide, uh, hydrofluorothiazide, but if you do so, uh, then probably need to start at uh, the 25 uh, milligram dose uh, uh, would be equivalent, uh, close equivalent to the uh, 12 and a half of fluorothalidone. And certainly the 25 would be uh, equivalent to somewhere between 40 and 50 milligrams of hydrofluorothiazide. Okay, thank you. Uh, Dr. 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 Uh, yeah, Dr. Wright, any any particular perspective on uh, the triamphrine hydrochlorothiazide combination? In, in many areas, it's as cheap as hydrochlorothiazide alone. Yeah, any thoughts and, on that? and one of the issues, certainly chlorothalidone also is uh, probably uh, uh, more potassium wasting uh, than uh, is hydrochlorothiazide. And certainly in those patients that have, uh, uh, where there's a need for uh, for potassium, then the uh, certainly the substitution, the addition of a potassium-sparing diuretic is a very inexpensive way to go, and in fact, uh, the uh, the hydrochlorothiazide triamphrine combination is in most uh, uh, areas is is less expensive than chlorothalidone. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, there, there was a second part. Yes, there question. was a second right. part. If maybe we could answer that one kind of quickly, so we can make sure that we we get uh, some more people in here, having to do with relative versus absolute value here. Yeah, uh, that was the way. Th the trial design, uh, I mean, the, the, the reporting of, of relative risk is a fairly standard way of reporting clinical trial results, and you'll see that way of reporting in, uh, in, in, uh, in, in multiple studies. You could convert uh, to a number uh, needed to treat, but actually we're comparing two, uh, we were comparing uh, four different uh, drug treatment arms, and so that in making the comparison, uh, then uh, the more appropriate comparison, the more appropriate way of reporting that is the, uh, the by relative risk. All right, thank you very much. Okay, next uh, caller, next question. Our next question comes from James with Tappahannock Family Practice. Please go ahead. Hello, thank you. Uh, Dr. Kylo, um, when you were talking about uh, systems changes, I was wondering, you didn't really address the concept of doing the structured query of your system, your record system, and making changes. Um, in a private practice, that sounds like it could be overwhelming to my staff, but it sounds like that's where I would want to start if I have perhaps two-thirds of my patients not yet on a diuretic. Is there any evidence about that? Has it been done effectively in practice settings? Terrific question. <laughs> Yeah, it has, and we, we, we do this kind of work all the time in small uh, private practices, everything from a one clinician practice uh, all, you know, all the way up to uh, multi-specialty groups. Uh, of course, even in a multi-specialty group, you're really making the changes you know, in the individual practices, the smaller little systems or you know, groups of folks who work together. And so I think the methodology is equally applicable there. And let me give you an example of how you might do that. Say, as an example, you wanted to test out this concept of a starter kit, uh, if you were to introduce that across your whole practice, I'm not sure how many colleagues you have, but let's just say you have four colleagues, uh, they might not be that enthused about doing that. Uh, so to talk right off the bat about any system level change, to start about, to talk about implementation and just making the change uh, without testing it first gets one into a significant amount of hot water usually because change is threatening to folks. So you might want to draft up yourself pretty quickly a sample uh, instruction uh, card for new, uh, or sheet for new hypertensives 
um, with self -manage, a little bit of self-management information. Uh, have yourself a pre-printed uh, prescription uh, uh, for hydrochlorothiazone or chlorthalazone if you want to do it that way, and just you do that for a week. Use that on any new case of hypertension you have, or maybe for a month, and just see how that goes. See how your staff respond to it. Where would you put this stuff? Is it easily accessible? Do you use it? Do patients like it? And then build on that. Uh, the next step might be to change the way you do that, store them in a different place because it's, they're easier to get at. Change the language that you have on there because people find it easier to comprehend. And then once you've tested that and once you've worked it out with just yourself, maybe one or two of your staff people, then begin to spread that change to others. It's less threatening that way. You've worked out a lot of the glitches that way, and it tends to make the implementation and the change process much more smooth. Terrific. Very, very interesting. Okay, uh, another question. Our next question comes from Peter with Oklahoma County Health. Please go ahead. Hi, this is uh, Peter with Multnomah County in Portland, Oregon. I, I actually was hoping to get other system improvement suggestions from Dr. Kylo. Um, we do not have sample faucets to eliminate, um, but we have a large, uh, we have a group of uh, county health clinics and 20 to 25 prescribers and we'd, we'd like to figure out some system ways to change behavior. What other ideas uh, would you advocate? All right, Dr. Kylo, continue <laughs> forward. Yeah, that's, that's a really great question. And again, uh, I believe that the educational interventions are necessary but not sufficient, but they are necessary. So I would start off with that. Uh, and I don't know what mechanisms you have to sit down with your providers, either in smaller groups or as one large group, but that's an important place to start to review this data and other data about the use of uh, thiazides and to come to some sort of agreement in your, uh, when you're in those educational sessions about the appropriate first-line choice for treat the treatment of, uh, of high blood pressure. The next step would be to consider doing some counter-detailing or some one-on-one -on -one educational uh, education. And uh, I suspect uh, via different mechanisms, you can come up with a list, a distribution of antihypertensives used by your different practitioners. And just by looking at that will be an interesting experience. We've done it ourselves in our own practice here. Uh, and we've really focused on the last couple of years of moving very heavily towards the use of thiazide as a first-line treatment. Uh, and so that's a very, I think, revealing and, and helpful um, uh, uh, piece as well. Next, I would try this um, automated uh, uh, this little packet for new antihypertensives, or try the packet for those who are uh, not under control. Uh, you'll find that it improves uh, uh, patient self-management. Uh, we know that we ought to be doing a lot more patient self-management training, but this, the physicians can't be the ones who do that. And so these little packets, pre-prepared packets, are a great way to go about doing that. You can also get the treatment of hypertension out of the hands of the physicians and into the hands of somebody like a pharmacist. You're big enough that you could do that to have a pharmacist or maybe a nurse practitioner participate in the chronic management. Those folks tend to follow guidelines and protocols more closely than physicians do for obviously a number, a number of reasons. So uh, interjecting somebody else not to take the place of the physician but to be an additional resource that the physician can use to manage this particular chronic condition, hypertensive, and the same thing goes for diabetes and other things like that. Thank you, Dr. Kylo, and for that question. Dr. Wright, I'm curious from your own uh, work and practice, 
do you have any anecdotes or you know even things uh, that you've tried you know on a on a small scale or the types of discussions you might have with patients even uh, to sort of get get things going in a different direction? No, the only point that I would add is I think uh, um, when you uh, we've actually done done, done surveys in, in in practices where you ask physicians. Um, uh, what percent of their blood pressures are uh, blood, uh, their patients are are, are at blood pressure goal? Uh, what percent are of your patients uh, are on a diuretic or on a, a given uh, 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 class of drug, uh, depending upon the, uh, the the indication? And it is amazing the the number of of physicians that that in fact uh, or practices that in fact overestimate uh, the. Uh, the data from their own practices when, when finally surveyed, so that these points are, 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 are very appropriate. And I think that the uh, the whole issue of of, um, of uh, clearly identifying, making that a, a priority when when uh, when you see the patient, most patients are very receptive to to uh, what the physician recommends. All right, thank you very much. Well, believe it or not, here when our hour went speeding by, uh, that's actually all the time we have for questions. Uh, there will be a web-based discussion group available on IHI's website for participants who'd like to continue a conversation with one another, and you can find a link to this discussion group right on the homepage of IHI.org. Now, in order to view or participate in the discussion group, you must register with IHI.org, but it's free and simple to do so. And we are uh, drawing to the conclusion of this second in a series of hour-long discussions we call Author in the Room. And I want to say thank you very much to Dr. Jackson Wright and to Dr. Chuck Kylo for uh, their knowledge and guidance today. And I'd actually like to give each of you an opportunity to make uh, some brief closing remarks. Uh, you can reiterate uh, some things you hope people won't forget or anything you'd like. Uh, why don't you start, Dr. Wright? I think the uh, the, the all had trial confirms uh, what has uh, uh, other trial data, and that is that uh, thiazide type diuretics are certainly safe uh, and effective uh, for the treatment of, of blood pressure, and that is in both blacks and in whites. Uh, uh, and in fact, that the effects of of, of the thiazide type diuretics in reducing uh, uh, blood pressure and clinical outcomes. Um, uh, Essentially, overwhelm the uh, the adverse uh, metabolic effects of those medications, uh, so that uh, 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 all efforts uh, should be made to uh, to use these these relatively inexpensive, uh, very effective drugs uh, in in the management of, of, of hypertensive patients. Okay, thank you, uh, Dr. Kylo. I have nothing more to add. Thank you, Madge. Okay. <laughs> you said it all. Okay. Well, you you had some wonderful uh, suggestions. Are you teasing me? You actually have something you want to no, say. No, that'll do it. That'll do it. Okay. Thank you. I mean, you had a lot of really great concrete uh, suggestions, uh, and uh, hopefully uh, people will about that, uh, you know, plan, do, study, act uh, model for making some changes. This is a monthly series that takes place the third Wednesday of every month from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion takes place on May 18th. The author and title of our featured article will be announced on the JAMA and IHI websites after 4 p.m. Eastern Time on May 10th. 
Author in the Room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical practice. The project is a collaboration between the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, generously funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. I want to thank uh, Dr. Chuck Kylo, Dr. Jackson Wright uh, for uh, their skills and guidance today. As a reminder, IHI and JAMA plan to study how and whether author in the room participants make use of clinical improvements suggested by our experts. Today's discussion of new findings on the comparative benefit of diuretics for treating both black and non-black patients with hypertension suggests some changes in practice clinicians can test on a small scale. And we are asking all participants to complete two short surveys that will be emailed to you immediately after the call and three months from now. And again, we thank you for joining us today and for taking the time to complete the survey. Again, thanks to our guests and to all of you for being part of Author in the Room. I'm Madge Kaplan of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Good day, everyone.